we've had a lot of positive and we've had a lot of skepticism. The idea of a revolution in something like the production of hydrogen has been something people have talked about for so long, but it hasn't been achieved. The way that we are getting around it is we're just going to build it. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhower. Today we're talking about a new take on producing hydrogen. My guest says they've cracked the problem of cracking a water molecule with a minimum amount of energy. There are two ways to make hydrogen on an industrial scale. There's steam reformation, where you add steam to methane, or natural gas. You can also use electrolysis, or electricity, to break up water molecules. Both of these processes are more energy intensive than the hydrogen they produce. In the case of reformation, the natural gas is pretty useful on its own. The benefit of getting it to hydrogen is the fact that it's carbon free when burned and can be a substitute for lithium ion in electric vehicles. Many guests I've interviewed have championed the value hydrogen could play with energy storage. Sure, it's inefficient to make, but it's clean and can be stored. Take the talk about creating green hydrogen or using renewable energy to power electrolysis. That electricity would be valuable on its own. It's only useful as hydrogen if the benefit to store it is more important than consuming that electricity in the moment. My guest says they've developed a way to produce hydrogen at ambient temperature. Unlike reformation and electrolysis, you don't have the inefficiency of waste heat. The technology revolves around what they call waveform disks. This can separate water molecules much more efficiently than electrolysis. My guest says although the energy penalty could still be negative, it's much more efficient than the alternatives, and hopefully to the point where cost no longer outweighs the benefit hydrogen can provide. It's early days, but the same principles here could extend beyond water and hydrogen. What if you could break apart CO2 or heavy hydrocarbons? These waveform disks could usher in a whole new way of building our energy future. My guest today is Witt Irvin Jr., CEO of Q Hydrogen, a startup based in Utah. Witt's father, Witt Sr., has been developing this waveform disk technology for about 25 years. The company isn't the typical family enterprise, though Witt Jr. grew up watching his dad develop what would eventually become the backbone technology for making hydrogen. He spent several years out in the real world before joining the company with his dad. Though based in Utah, Witt says they picked a former paper mill in Groveton, New Hampshire for their first commercial facility. It will pull water from a near nearby river, convert it to hydrogen, and then produce electricity for new customers who set up their businesses in the area. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Whit Irvin Jr. We're here with Whit Irvin Jr., CEO of Q Hydrogen, and Whit, this process was explained to me as using waveform disks to split the water molecule. How do you explain this to folks at dinner? Well, I usually start out with a bit of history on how we got to where we are with the technology. My father, Whitaker Irvin Sr., is the inventor of this technology or new science, and been at this point about 25 years of development. And I think one of the best examples on how to at least give a visual is our power plant that we're building up 
up in northern New Hampshire. So at this facility, it's a former power plant that we are now repurposing to be a renewable hydrogen-based power plant. It's located on this river called the Upper Amanusik, and from that river, we are directly taking water, which we have a permit now for 300,000 gallons a day, into a processing tank that's roughly 200,000 gallons. At that point, it's brought into a facility on the backside of the power plant that's roughly 2,000 square feet. And in there, that's where these waveform disks you're referring to are located. For lack of a better term, they're basically turbines. They're large circular turbines that have very specific metallurgy involved in their creation. And these waveforms are essentially milled or machined into the surfaces of these plates that become the turbine. So the water is directly taken into this turbine. There is an electric motor involved with spinning the turbine itself. There are also some other forces involved in creation of the hydrogen too. But at a high level, that's how we do it. And then in this case, the hydrogen is going to be directly utilized on site for running modified diesel reciprocators to produce electricity. And the two other forms of making hydrogen are steam reformation, usually of natural gas and electrolysis, basically <laughs> zapping water with electricity. And this isn't that, right? First of all, what are you calling this process and how energy intensive is it compared to those things? Right now, we haven't gotten super fancy on what we're calling it, but it's essentially Q hydrogen. We're calling it the Q hydrogen yeah. generator. The difference really is our process does not involve a heat reaction to create the hydrogen. Heat is an example of loss. And one of the reasons why something like electrolysis is so expensive to create hydrogen in the first place is because of the amount of heat it takes to get the hydrogen out of the water. Our process, by not having the heat component, being able to do it at ambient temperatures is one of the keys that's able to keep our cost to produce down and hence the amount of electricity we use in our process is far less. Has this kind of process ever been described before? Are you the first ones to do it? We are the first ones to do it. And I think mainly the reasoning behind that is a lot of other technologies that come out that are advances in the hydrogen space are iterative improvements on previously existing tech. So if you're constantly focusing on something that's already been out there and trying to come up with an incremental change, you'll probably get somewhere. You'll get something that's slightly better, but it takes thinking completely outside of the box to get you to a paradigm shift or something that's revolutionary. Sure. Your feedstock is water. You're splitting a water molecule. How pure does your water need to be? I believe electrolysis needed it either to be deionized or a permeate containing no dissolved solids. What's the tolerance for the equipment? Can it handle water that maybe isn't 100% TDS free? Yes. So generally speaking, if you can see it with the naked eye, it can't go into the machine. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> for example, like what we're doing up in New Hampshire, it's a freshwater source, just a river. With that, we take the water directly from the river. It goes into this 200,000 gallon cement pre-processing, I guess you call it a tank, but it's really a square that has some proprietary geometries built into that too. But the large particulate matter falls out at that point. So the stuff that you can see with the naked eye and the rest goes into the process itself. And eventually we could also do stuff with even salt water or brackish water, but what does end up being created are concentrates of salt or whatever minerals are in the water. So there will be waste gates and other things involved and then you have to deal with whatever that residual is on the other end. Well, that would be the typical, even if you were purifying the water you got with like a reverse osmosis filter system, you're going to end right. up with that anyway. The difference is we don't have to have the filter system to get there. So there's not that additional waste with those other ancillary systems. Sure. I think a lot of people would be happy to know that, that yeah. you would need something like that, having that filter system. This idea of splitting the water using the disks, do you think these principles could be used to split something like CO2, other molecules, any other 
molecules, you'd be interested in taking a whack at them too? So our patent work involves a lot of discussion on fluids and gases. Your imagination can fly to so many different areas <laughs> on where that could lead you. But our focus at this moment is really just hydrogen. And that's <laughs> one of the fun places that our IP guys tell me, they're like, don't be too specific on it yet. Okay, well, I won't. So I'll just talk at a high level about, yes, we have some stuff in the works. It's very general in that space, but our focus is hydrogen. <laughs> Fair enough. Your dad, Witt Sr., he said he started working on this about 25 years ago. Nowadays, I would say in the last maybe two years, we've really had a lot of intense discussion about hydrogen as a medium, especially a storage medium, especially for renewables. So at the time, back then, 25 years ago, did he believe that hydrogen would be discussed like it is now as a storage medium? What were some of the avenues he was expecting to explore with hydrogen? We all know that the world has been ready for the idea of a hydrogen economy for decades. The key barrier for that to become a reality was the cost to produce that hydrogen. Now hydrogen as a storage medium is the main conversation because relatively speaking, the cost to produce is still so high. Our hope with this technology and others is that hydrogen becomes more of a mainstream fuel, which is why we're building that power plant up in northern New Hampshire. Yeah. And what has interest like been from the outside? Do you get a lot of skepticism? <laughs> We've had a lot of positive and we've had a lot of skepticism and of course any sort of new technology you would expect it. The idea of a revolution in something like the production of hydrogen has been something people have talked about for so long but it hasn't been achieved. Skepticism is natural. The way that we are getting around it is we're just going to build it. So that's why this power plant that's now been under construction since October of 19. We've had some delays of course due to our current situations with COVID and supply chains etc. But it will be opening this year. That plant will be the first commercial installation that will unveil what we're doing to the world, essentially. How did you get funding for this? It's all been very close. It's all been very close folks. It was personal funding, family-wise, and then just close people that are associated with us. There's been no venture capital or anything like that up to this point. Did you have conversations with folks like that, the venture capital guys? We have, and actually there are some that are involved, but they're not involved through their funds. They're involved personally. Were they skeptical? Because I've seen this experience in the past where you can present something like this, like a low-energy way to produce hydrogen, and they're still skeptical about it. They want to see the magic box. They want to see three years of financials before they get involved. Has that kind of been the experience? How would you describe it? Um, so those that actually make the effort to come, they sign the NDAs and they become intimately familiar with the technology. Those are the ones that we bring in. They're the people that are completely familiar. The way that my father puts it is we don't say anything that we won't show you, but the people that we show it to are those that end up becoming close to the group. But getting to this point, it's not been a cross your fingers and hope it works. It's been a we show them and get into to it if it makes sense for that person to be involved. Sure. How would you like to see this technology proliferating? Do you want to own the facilities or license them? I mean, if this works, it could take off pretty quickly, right? Correct. I mean, we're big believers of not reinventing the entire economic wheel. <laughs> there are instances where it makes sense, like what we're doing up in northern New Hampshire with this first plant. We're owner operators of what is basically a power production utility type operation. In some cases, we would just be a technology solutions provider to previously existing infrastructure where we're retrofitting or introducing our version of producing hydrogen into, let's say, the chemical industry or production of ammonia. So it'd be like a reduction of costs associated with the overhead for what they're currently using. In some cases, it would be joint ventures. In some cases, it'll be license 
licensing agreements, but those licensing agreements will be more like what Disney uses, where it's not just like a carte blanche release. It's something where we would still have our hand on the tiller, but it would be licensing as opposed to us being directly involved in everything. A lot of it has to do with geographic location you're focusing on. So where in the world you're going, what the use is and who the right partners are, because we definitely will not say that we know the best way to do everything. And there are a lot of folks already in industry that have lots of experience that would be foolish for us to just disregard. It's not a one size fits all. But I think it's a model that in the energy and utility world will work really well because of the flexibility of how we're willing to do this. Yeah. When it comes to hydrogen, there's really two ways to consume it. I had a guest from GE on that was describing what you're doing, which is taking hydrogen and essentially running it through a turbine. You're burning it, right? Yep. A lot of other people are talking about using hydrogen for fuel cells that would compete with lithium ion batteries and electric vehicles. And that's an interesting point, this idea about hydrogen or lithium ion. Some would say that lithium ions might go the way of CFL light bulbs. You know, we did that for about five years and then we went right on to LED light bulbs and that's what we're using now. What do you think? Do you think hydrogen will serve that role as the storage medium? First thing I want to say about electric cars is they're kind of like the forefathers in my view, along with wind and solar, to general awareness of renewable energy technologies, our environment, climate, etc. A lot of people had talked about these things over the years, but it didn't really gain mainstream attention until we had these examples of the electric cars, solar and wind. I jokingly have a neighbor in Utah that drives around a Tesla that has a license plate that says coal power. <laughs> but um, the long and short of it is, generally speaking, people, at least in this country, they like to go to fueling stations. They like to immediately show up and leave and be on their way. Lithium-ion battery technologies, of course, are improving as far as their ability to fast charge. But I would say I'd see as prices come down related to hydrogen and then you have hydrogen fuel cell vehicles starting to become prolific in the market. I believe that hydrogen will become the dominant player, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles being a key part of that. And on the other side of this coin, there are a lot of mom and pop type fueling operations that are all around the world that if we just focus purely on electric, those things would go the way of the dinosaur. It would be a huge hit. I see it as kind of a way to also transition what we're currently using for our fossil fuel sources at these fueling stations to the cleaner future of hydrogen fuel cell vehicles while also maintaining that economic engine that already exists. So you would like to see hydrogen essentially replace gasoline and there is a model where cars still go to a gas station. Correct. And I like that idea. It's the same thing. Like oil and gas companies are very powerful. They've had a lot of know-how. They've done a lot when it comes to pipelines, distribution networks, etc. And there is a way for all of that to continue, but do it in an environmentally responsible way with the next generation of technology. Like we talked about, the hydrogen discussion has really become mainstream just in the last couple of years. If we had come out with this technology five or 10 years ago, it would have been premature and would have gone nowhere. So it's almost as if the market and our readiness for the technology to be revealed serendipitously came together at the same time. Yeah. I want to ask you a little bit more about this facility in New Hampshire. You guys are in Utah. New Hampshire's pretty far away. I'm sure there would have been other candidates that would have been closer. Why did you settle on New Hampshire? I'm a graduate of Batson College. I lived in the Boston area for quite a long time. New England was the first area to deregulate, and they are kind of the model from a utility perspective that other independent service operator organizations, other ISOs throughout the country follow when it comes to deregulating, meaning you either own the power plant or you own the transmission and distribution side of the coin. New England was a natural first place for us to look because out in Utah, we're not deregulated. I have a good friend of 
mine that is a state representative in New Hampshire who asked us to consider New Hampshire. That was several years ago. I met with the governor and saw a lot of different sites and met folks on both sides of the aisle. And New Hampshire turns out a very open, welcoming, and good state to bring something new out in. I mean, the site that we chose up in northern New Hampshire, it's a former paper mill that closed in the early 2000s and devastated the economy up there. The mill had been there since the early 1900s. Our idea and our plan, there's already one user on the site who will work to get an agreement in place to provide them electricity. But the plan is to provide electricity at rates that are competitive with what you would see in the western United States to bring industry back to that zone and create jobs and bring the economy in northern New Hampshire back up. And it's a kind of model that can be followed over and over again throughout the United States and areas where industry is not viable anymore and further other places in the world. When you took a look at that site, that paper mill, how much of it was usable? How much of it needed to be refurbished, gutted? <laughs> how much work did you have to do once you got in there? The majority of the mill site itself had been demolished. There were some existing buildings. What we bought was one of the existing buildings. So it was the former cogeneration plant that they had on the site. I believe that it ran at that point on natural gas, but before it had been heavy crude. We bought essentially what was a shell. It was a site reuse type deal. And then there was some previously existing infrastructure in the ground that we could repurpose for our uses. But we've had to refurbish the whole building, add in new electrical, new piping. So it's been an undertaking. Now it's all coming together and we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. How is it working with utilities, the transmission folks? I mean, you're going to be merchant power, right? Our plan right now, we originally were planning just to sell directly to the site. And it's kind of been slow going as far as getting additional folks to that site. Our plan is kind of twofold. It's the work on getting a grid interconnect. So that process has started and we've got the engineering firms that are going through that now, doing all the studies, etc. That's been good because they're the right people that know all the right folks. And then on the other side, we'll just work with the current site owner to hopefully attract new businesses to that place. I mean, there's 140 acres. Yeah. There's a big opportunity there with pre-existing power lines for us to grow with the site and provide inexpensive electricity to those users and bring industry back to that area. Yeah, that's definitely got to be exciting. Your dad, Whit Sr., began researching this technology about 25 years ago. Now, you were a kid at that time. <laughs> did you think Did you think then this would lead you there? How much was he talking about it then around the household? He called it his going into his cave period. <laughs> um, in the late 90s, around 2000, we moved to Maryland. Their house had a library, and in the library, he like closed the door and creating all these various thought forms and doing CAD drawings, etc., and stuff was all over the walls and sketches, etc., to the point where he created his first prototypes. But the body of technology that brought us to this point, it was kind of an iterative process. So as you develop, you make discoveries and then you look at the overall picture of where everything is going and then make decisions on, okay, well, what makes sense to commercialize first? And hydrogen was the one that made sense to commercialize first. He had his large aha in that space. I think it was around 2006, 2007. We've learned to pivot and focus on the way the world works today with the idea that we can be a part of that overall puzzle to move the Titanic away from the iceberg, so to speak. What was his day job? What led him to this? He was an industrialist in Latin America. He kind of had the non-stereotypical education to get him to this point. He went to Texas A&M for engineering. He dropped out, informed my grandparents that he was going to go do something else, like go work in the oil fields in Midland. I know a lot of those guys. <laughs> yep. 
Yeah, my grandparents responded basically over their dead bodies. They thought they were going to teach him a lesson by sending him down to Mexico to work with a large industrial group, one of the largest at the time. The close friend of theirs thought that a few months there would scare him straight and he'd go back to school. Well, it backfired. He solved a bunch of their major issues within a few months, and they informed my grandparents that they were not going to be encouraging his return to A&M. He stayed down in Mexico, and they made him a full partner in their organization. And that's what he did for a long time before he said he got to the point where he had been to the mountain and didn't like what he saw. He felt that his generation and previous generation had been very poor stewards of this planet, and he wanted to do something else. So he divested of his operations and then started the development on this technology. And let's get to you. You're like me. You didn't study a STEM field, and yet you're finding yourself in settings where I'm sure you get the aren't you an engineer business, especially when we're talking about very technical concepts, right? Look, your dad's the tech guy. For you, it's really more about can you understand technical concepts? Correct. I think it comes down to that for so many things. You have to be able to talk about your subject matter intelligently to at least some deeper level. The majority of the folks I talk to are like folks in government, legislators, consultants, investors, attorneys, and occasionally you'll find the technical person that really wants to dig deep. I always know that there's a point in the conversation where I say, okay, well, I understand you want to know even more and I'm happy about that. And if it makes sense, I'll put you in touch with the right people and then put folks under NDAs and there they go. You have to have a deep enough understanding of your subject. And of course, I've been around it since I was little. But if I didn't have that, it would be really difficult for me to have these conversations. We have folks that get involved, that it takes them at least a year or two to be able to grasp what's going on. And then they're able to have similar conversations. But I enjoy it. I really enjoy it. And you are right, though. That is a common question. Aren't you an engineer? And the answer is no. My degree is from an entrepreneurial business school with a background in finance and global business. And then I was a program manager in the world of defense. So Yeah, Wit, and I was going to get to that. You know, this idea of a lot of quote unquote family businesses, the younger generation essentially never really spends any time out in what I would call the real world. But you didn't do that. You grew up with your dad working on this. You went outside there and now here you are mid-career coming back into this. I mean, that's got to be satisfying, right? It is. And I think that going that route was essential because the reality is jumping right in. You don't understand the overall business ecosystem of how a lot of these major corporations work. I worked at companies like Fidelity Investments, Raytheon. I was lucky enough to be part of Raytheon's leadership development program. It moved me every eight months to another part of the company. Then they did continuing ed courses with Harvard Business, and we had to go through the Disney Leadership Institute, things like that. You gain a lot of valuable experience in those real-world roles. Those companies are so huge. You see what things work and what things don't, and it gives you an idea of how you can employ that in your family business or whatever venture you're involved in or what things you thought could have worked, you can tweak it. But all of those experiences were invaluable. If what I'm doing now was not part of the equation, I would have never left Raytheon. Certainly. And look, I've worked for teeny tiny companies and mid-sized companies and big corporations. And I think there's benefits to each of them. And there's also some drawbacks. For instance, if you're in a super big company, it's easy to get swallowed up. And then in smaller companies, it's essentially like you're dating the boss. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, so when things go bad, it's like you break up, you lose your job. Any thoughts about the culture that you guys want to develop? Well, family businesses, especially when I first started, there's a different dynamic because it's like you're the kid who's coming into the family business and, and there's still some of that parental type oversight. But over the years, I've been there now almost a decade. The confidence in my ability to help build the company was realized. And now I have a team of people that are essential in our development. And as we move forward, these are the people that have been in industry. Like my CFO has been the CFO of a Fortune 500 company. These folks are the ones that I rely on to help us build an organization that will last. So beyond just the tech development side of what we're going to be bringing out, we're simultaneously developing the commercialization arm of our company to be able to handle what's next. Yeah, good lesson there is to have guys who worked at big companies when you're working at a small company. They at least maybe have a little bit more of the manners. <laughs> yeah, and it, I mean, the key really is the idea that we're small now, but we realize that what we're doing can get very big very fast. You have to have the knowledge base to be able to grow quickly, and it takes those types of people to move the needle in that direction. All right, Whit, I'm going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies, starting with natural gas. Natural gas is a great transition to technology, very necessary. Crude oil. Helped get us to where we are today. And I think that it's sunset is coming, but it'll be used in industry for quite a long time. Nuclear. I am a fan, but it's had a lot of negative PR issues and cost overruns along with some of their largest producers going bankrupt. So we'll see what happens. Coal. And I'll also include coal with carbon capture. Coal was the forefather to the industrial revolution. That's what got us to where we are today. Very necessary, but the sunset is, I think, going down quickly. Wind. I kind of bucket wind and solar together. They are the beginning of the renewable energy revolution. I remember when they first started, everyone said, too expensive to produce, it's never going to work, da 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 And now it's becoming more of commonplace part of large utilities energy portfolios. So I'm all for it. We'll just count that as solar too. Biofuels. Same thing. Employing other versions of fuel to get to the same end goal, but they could be more environmentally responsible. That's a good thing. Hydroelectric. Love hydroelectric in places where it all makes sense. I mean, it's been around forever. Technology has pretty much stayed the same with some iterative changes. And interestingly enough, I think we're figuring that there are some unknown pitfalls or unexpected pitfalls related to areas where there's growth in the Amazon, et cetera. But hydroelectric has its place and it always will, in my belief. Geothermal. If you've got it, use it. That power source underground that's produced by earth without having to create that heat and if you have the necessary area to take advantage of it you should use it energy storage is a very necessary component for grid reliability and something that will continue in various forms throughout our existence i believe and for hydrogen more energy storage or more of a fuel like natural gas i think hydrogen is going to become more of a fuel like natural gas electric vehicles forefather to the renewable energy revolution along with wind and solar. I love the idea behind them. Stuff's getting better, but I think eventually that fuel cell vehicles will overtake electric. Energy efficiency. Energy efficiency is going to be something that people will continue to improve on, focus on. I mean, we had the lead building programs that are just getting better and better. And um, I believe that energy efficiency programs will become more commonplace even in countries where folks hadn't been talking about it, third world countries, as they develop. So I see it as being also 
also a part of our reality for the foreseeable future. And then finally, fusion power. Great ideas. I mean, there's a lot of development going on in that space. The ITER project in France, of course, is one of the largest. It's still quite a ways from being completed. But I think that all of these things are part of the new reality we are going to be in related to energy and energy efficiency and doing things responsibly. So it's a good thing. All right. Whit Irvin Jr., Q Hydrogen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Jay. That was Whit Urban Jr., CEO of Q Hydrogen, a technology startup based in Utah. Once the New Hampshire facility is operational, Q Hydrogen will be able to share more information behind their technology as well as the efficiencies they can achieve with their process over older hydrogen production methods. I also like that they are using backup power from a hydroelectric dam to help them realize this fuel of the future. I want to thank Whit for his time as well as Brian Highland at Rubenstein PR for setting this up. I also want to thank Q Hydrogen's legal team for working with us to share as much about this technology as they can at this time, so often it's easy to simply say everything is off limits. So I appreciate them sharing as much as they could. You can find plenty of pictures for this episode on energy-cast.com as well as on Instagram and Parlor at Host Energy and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 108. Be sure to join us next week when we explore a technology to literally make electric electricity cleaner. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.